0: It might seem like something out of the movies, but these are just some of the real-life essential components of being a spy. The latest podcast from Parcast, Espionage, tells the stories of the world's most incredible undercover missions and how these covert operations changed the world, whether they succeeded or failed. Espionage is a Parcast original podcast from the same storytelling team behind hit shows like Unexplained Mysteries, Serial Killers, and Conspiracy Theories. What you are about to hear is the first part of the first Espionage episode. To hear the remainder of this episode, search for and subscribe to Espionage, wherever you listen to podcasts, or visit com slash espionage to start listening now.
1: Rows of records flashed past Julius Rosenberg as he made his way deeper and deeper into the Army Signal Corps building. He checked his watch, trying to remain as casual as possible. That was the secret to being covert. Remain perfectly normal. He pulled a paper-bound file from the shelf and unwrapped it. Inside was a manual... Dictating the full schematics on the U.S. jet fighter, the P-80 Shooting Star. This plane was the choice fighter for the American forces. And with any luck, the Soviets would know every system on board. Just then, a door slammed at the other end of the room. Someone was there. Julius didn't have much time. He pushed back his horned-rimmed glasses and removed a small Leica camera from his suitcase. He snapped pictures of the file one page at a time. Faster, faster, faster. Then, as the footsteps turned the corner, he tied the string around the file and placed it back on the shelf. It was just a record assistant restocking books. Julius nodded and continued on his way. That night, Julius called his handler on the phone. It rang twice. And he hung up. That was all his handler needed to know. Julius had information. This is Espionage, a new ParCast original exploring the missions behind the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. I'm your host, Carter Roy. Throughout this show, we'll explore real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. This is our first episode on the world's most infamous atomic spies, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. In the mid-1940s, 27-year-old Julius and his 30-year-old wife Ethel orchestrated a top-secret operation to steal information about the atomic bomb from right under the FBI's nose. This week, we'll explore how two American communists turn from activists into international spies. Next week, we'll follow the Rosenbergs as their operation comes crashing to the ground. Julius Rosenberg had lived on the Lower East Side since he was a child. He knew it better than anyone. The noise, the heat, the discrimination... The big businesses flourishing while hard-working families starved. New York City was proof that American capitalism had failed. Everyone said America was the land of opportunity. Well, that's why Julius's parents had moved there from the Russian Empire. But the reality of life during the Great Depression, especially for working-class Jewish immigrants like the Rosenbergs, was far from utopian. All Julius saw was injustice and inequality. While Julius was a student at the City College of New York in the mid-1930s, he worked part-time at a pharmacy in Harlem. One night, a black man was hit by a bus on the street just outside the shop. They brought him inside, but in the hour it took for an ambulance to arrive, the man bled to death. If that was the best America could offer... Julius wanted to see his other options. Like many young people in the 1930s, Julius saw a more promising vision of society in his family's homeland, Russia, at the time serving as the center of power within the Soviet Union. Under communism, equality was a promise, not a dream. The poor would be lifted up and the rich would be held in check. By the time he was 18 in 1936, Julius was a rising leader in CCNY's Young Communist League. The Communist Party USA was enjoying a moment in the spotlight in the 1930s. Membership rose from 7,500 to 55,000 over the course of the decade. This was partially due to disillusionment with capitalism during the Great Depression, and also in response to the rise of fascism in Spain and Germany. In the days before McCarthyism, communism wasn't a dirty word, and the party attracted droves of supporters by fighting for labor laws, women's rights, and racial equality. At a political rally in the winter of 1936, Julius met another freethinker, Ethel Greenglass. Ethel was a 21-year-old aspiring actress and out-of-work secretary. She'd been fired from her clerical job the previous year for organizing a workers' strike, but it didn't scare her away from activism. In fact, it only made her more fiery. Julius and Ethel were both true believers in the communist cause, and politics became the passion that bound them together. Julius was bold and fearless, At one point in college, he led a raid on a German ocean liner, the SS Bremen, and tore the Nazi flag from its jackstaff. Ethel, on the other hand, was cautious and practical. Julius could never be bothered to do his homework, so Ethel routinely wrote his college papers for him, typing them up on her secondhand Remington typewriter. If it wasn't for Ethel's diligence, Julius may not have finished college at all. But he finally graduated with a B.S. in electrical engineering in February 1939, one semester late, and ranked 79th out of 85 in his class. The next year, Julius got a job as a civilian engineer inspecting equipment for the Army Signal Corps in New York. For most electrical engineers, this would have been a boring entry-level job. But Julius saw the hidden value— This position offered him access to America's advanced radio, radar, and sonar technologies, the foundation of the U.S. military's communication systems. Just a year later, in December 1941, the United States entered World War II. The Soviet Union and America were allies in the war, but they were still ideological opposites. As two of the world's rising superpowers, neither country wanted to see the other surpass them in technological advances. And as two of America's rising communists, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg knew which side they wanted to come out on top when the war was finally over. Throughout the early 1940s, Julius snuck as much information as he could into his briefcase, circuit board diagrams. Company messages. He didn't know exactly what Russia needed, so he grabbed a little bit of everything. With Ethel's knowledge and support, he hid the stolen documents on their apartment's bookshelf, waiting for an opportunity to pass it along into the right hands. To do that, the Rosenbergs needed to contact the NKVD the Soviet Union's interior ministry and secret police agency, which would later become known as the KGB. But how do two 20-something New Yorkers get connected with a foreign country's top-secret intelligence agency? In 1941, Julius and Ethel began feeling out potential contacts in the Young Communist League and the Communist Party USA, They attended weekly party meetings across New York City, and at every meeting, Julius made it a point to mention in casual conversation that he happened to possess sensitive information that could undermine the American military. After almost two years, this method failed to produce any results. The NKVD very rarely touched base with the Communist Party USA, which was basically an intellectual organization run by politically powerless left-wing academics. A proper 1940s Soviet agent focused their time on Ivy League universities. This was where the next generation of American statesmen could be found. By the end of 1942, when Julius was 24 and Ethel was 27 they had a new plan. If the NKVD didn't want them, they would build their own spy network. Many of Julius's friends from college had found jobs in engineering facilities where top-secret U.S. military equipment was churned out on conveyor belts every day. He started by reaching out to his old friend Joel Barr, who also worked with him at the Army Signal Corps. His friend Morton Sobel was at General Electric. William Pearl was at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, the predecessor to NASA. Other friends ended up at Bell Laboratories, Western Electric, and a chemical engineering firm called the Kellex Corporation. Julius's sales pitch was always the same. According to his friend Max Eletcher, Julius would tell each potential recruit that many of their friends were already giving secrets to Russia and that together they could bring about a change in the status quo. For most, this was all it took. By April 1942, Julius and Ethel had amassed half a dozen American engineers who were loyal to the communist cause together, they gathered information about sonar, military radio, radar, and cutting-edge avionics from their corporate day jobs. A few months later, their work finally caught the kind of attention Julius had been waiting for. In June 1942, Julius was making his rounds at a Communist Party meeting when he was introduced to a man named Bernard Schuster, Schuster wasn't an NKVD agent himself, but he told Julius he knew an agent by the name of Jacob Golos, codename Sound. Jacob Golos was a rising star in the NKVD. He was a Russian immigrant who had made a name for himself in the 1920s by stealing American passports, which the Soviet Union used to forge American travel documents with extreme accuracy. By 1930, Golos was recruited by the Soviet Union as a bona fide spy. His job was to recruit American intelligence sources, aka assets, who were willing to sell secrets to the Soviets. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were exactly the kind of people Golos was looking for. Schuster saw Julius's value to Russia and told him that he would contact Golos later that month. By the end of the summer, Bernard Schuster told Julius that Golos would meet him in the Upper East Side within the following month, August 1942. Julius could feel the August heat pressing down on him. His glasses slid down the sweaty bridge of his nose. Finally, a car stopped along the street and a man with a round face and large lips stepped out. This must be Jacob Golos, There was nothing special about Golos' appearance. He looked totally unremarkable. This was by design. According to former chief of disguise of the CIA, Jonna Mendez, spies try to be the man or woman that, quote, gets on the elevator and then gets off, and nobody knew they were there. Golos approached Julius and stopped a few feet away. What happened next is called a recognition signal, According to the International Spy Museum, this is a simple phrase, word, or object that is used to identify yourself as an ally agent. We don't know the exact signal used for this conversation, but ex-Soviet spy Klaus Fuchs described some KGB tactics after the Cold War. As a spy, he was instructed to wear gloves but carry a second pair, or to hold a tennis ball as he walked down the street. The goal of these recognition signals is to be subtle enough to seem normal but overt enough to identify your ally. Once the recognition was confirmed, Golos gave Julius a small slip of paper with a telephone number. In perfect English, Golos told Julius to call him when he needed to talk. Julius nodded. Golos got back into his car and left. The whole meeting lasted no more than about 30 seconds, but it was the most important 30 seconds of Julius Rosenberg's life. Coming up, we'll hear how the FBI began to tighten a noose around the Rosenberg's life.